This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, November 9th. I'm Daniel Davis. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, we'll be joined by two of our problematic women, Kelsey Harkness and Lauren Evans, to discuss the female politicians' victories on Tuesday that the media aren't really covering, as well as the blowback against white women. We'll also explore why one mom regrets adopting her daughters from China and how one celebrity actress is actually holding the Women's March accountable. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. Details are emerging about the terrible shooting at a country bar in Southern California, which left 12 dead. The suspect is a veteran who reportedly suffered from PTSD. Jason Kaufman, whose son Cody was one of the victims, spoke to reporters in this CNN clip about his son. His outgoing love for everybody, his outgoing love for his baseball team. He was a head umpire for the Camarillo Pony Baseball League. I mean, there was so many people that he touched and now are going to be just as heartbroken as I am. Ventura County Sheriff Jeff Dean said that the alleged shooter had been on the police department's radar previously. He said, quote, in April of this year, deputies were called to his house. They went to the house. They talked to him. He was somewhat irate, acting a little irrationally. They called out our crisis intervention team, our mental health specialists, who met with him, talked to him, and cleared him. Well, Fox News host Tucker Carlson got a taste of the leftist mob, which showed up on his doorstep the night after the midterm elections. The group of protesters called him a racist scumbag and demanded that he and his family leave D.C. Well, according to the Washington Post, Carlson was at work preparing for his evening show when he received multiple text messages. The group of roughly 20 protesters had cracked his front door and his wife had gone to the pantry to hide and call 911. Thankfully, his kids were not at home at the time. Carlson told the Washington Post that, quote, they weren't protesting anything specific that I had said. They weren't asking me to change anything. They weren't protesting a policy or advocating for legislation. They were threatening me and my family and telling me to leave my own neighborhood in the city that I grew up in, end quote. Well, the protesters were affiliated with Smash Racism DC, a left-wing group that's been known to harass Republican officials in public places. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized Thursday after breaking three ribs in a fall. She previously broke two ribs in 2012 and didn't miss any work then, according to the New York Times, which also stated that full recovery from broken ribs generally takes around six weeks. Well, fresh off the elections, Democrats are gearing up to resist, investigate, and impeach. Congressman Gerald Nadler is likely to head up the House Judiciary Committee, and according to a Federalist article from Molly Hemingway, he plans to launch investigations into Justice Brett Kavanaugh and potentially impeach him. The way the article reads, it seems like Hemingway was able to overhear some of his phone conversations on the train, and Nadler uh, put forward two options for going after Kavanaugh, either arguing that the FBI's investigation wasn't thorough enough, recall that he was investigated seven times during his life, or that he perjured himself during the committee hearing. Uh, Nadler also said that House Democrats would make Russian investigations a high priority, 
that they'd be going all in and that much of what they get would depend on the results of the Mueller investigation. The White House has taken away the press access of CNN's Jim Acosta, citing how he behaved when a female White House intern tried to take the microphone from him when the president indicated he was done answering questions from Acosta. In a series of tweets, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders wrote, quote, President Trump believes in a free press and expects and welcomes tough questions of him and his administration. We will, however, never tolerate a reporter placing his hands on a young woman just trying to do her job as a White House intern. This conduct is absolutely unacceptable. It is also completely disrespectful to the reporter's colleagues not to allow them an opportunity to ask a question. Acosta and CNN both called Sanders' accusation a lie. Personally, I've watched the video, and for whatever it's worth, while I think Acosta was incredibly rude in not giving the microphone over, he does appear to say, pardon me, to the female intern, and I think um, while he should have given the microphone over, placing his hands on the intern suggests something more intense occurred. Well, with Jeff Sessions gone, his chief of staff, Matt Whitaker, has taken over as the acting attorney general, and that means that he's now supervising the Mueller investigation. In the past, Whitaker had voiced concern that the Mueller probe had gone too far and said that a smart attorney general would starve it of funds. President Trump is expected to choose a new permanent attorney general in the weeks ahead. According to CNN, citing sources with knowledge of the matter, Trump is considering Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, and Pam Bondi, the Florida attorney general. Both are longtime allies of the president. Former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman will not be charged. Nassau County District Attorney Madeline Singus said in a statement per Fox News, following an exhaustive review, evaluation of the facts, the law, and applicable statutes of limitations, I have concluded our investigation into the allegations of physical abuse allegedly committed by former New York State Attorney General Eric T. Schneiderman without criminal charges. The New Yorker reported in May that multiple women had accused Schneiderman of inappropriate physical actions. Schneiderman had denied wrongdoing, stating, I have not assaulted anyone. Well, if you get to determine your own gender, why not your age? That's the question Emil Rattleband is asking. He's a 69-year-old Dutch man who wants to identify as 20 years younger. He says being old makes it hard to get a job and to find matches on Tinder. So what's a guy to do? Obviously, sue. Rattleband is suing his local authority to get his birth year changed to 1969. He says, quote, I have done a checkup, and what does it show? My biological age is 45 years. When I'm 69, I'm limited. If I'm 49, then I can buy a new house, drive a different car. I can take up more work. When I'm on Tinder and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. But when I, <laughs> This when is I, very serious. <laughs> when I'm 49, with the face I have, I will be in a luxurious position, end quote. So, kids, it's a brave new world out there, uh, and the Netherlands has been out on the leading edge of social liberalism. We'll see where this one goes. I mean, I think this is a very serious matter. I mean, he's got a point. I his did biological record. age is 45. But what social construct are you to say that he should be 69? This is true. It's not an empirical fact that someone was born at a certain time and place. Absolutely not. Please. Well, sadly, <laughs> we're not. Do, should we check our cis ages privilege? Or cis is that ages. what this is? Uh, yeah, I mean, I he's think... trans age, and we're cis age. I mean, 
I don't. Yeah, I'm. I'm just thinking. Actually, like this is very concerning for the future of dating apps because everyone is lying about their age. But I think people lie anyway. Well, yeah, but like it is also that would be an awesome social experiment to see if he said he was 49. If he right. could do a lot better, he probably could. He probably has already tried it. I mean, it sounded like he's like saying, it. you know, he's, 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 yeah, that's true. It's, well, I mean, how would he, I don't know how Tinder vets your age. I'm pretty sure they can't. I don't know. I don't know what you have to surrender over, but uh, anyway. Okay. And of course, those remarks that uh, <laughs> this age questioning man made were made to the Telegraph. But next up, we're going to discuss a bunch of issues about feminism with our problematic women. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal, and I'm inviting you to share your thoughts with us. Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on The Daily Signal podcast. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's another Problematic Woman Day on the podcast, and Kelsey Harkness, a senior news producer at The Daily Signal, and Lauren Evans, a producer at the Heritage Foundation and The Daily Signal, are joining us. Thanks for being on, guys. Thanks so much for having us. So first off, we're going to discuss the story you probably haven't heard that much about on the media. All the women on the right who triumphed in elections Tuesday night, Marsha Blackburn will be Tennessee's first woman senator. Kay Ivey in Alabama, Christy Nome in South Dakota, and Kim Reynolds of Iowa will all be the first female governors in their states. And young Kim became the first Korean-American woman elected to Congress. Of course, there are plenty of firsts among women on the left, too, including the first Muslim woman in the United States House of Representatives and the youngest woman in Congress ever, our favorite, or maybe not, (laughs) Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But you've probably heard a lot more about them. So besides the victories, another liberal narrative came up, and this is how horrible white women are. This came up in several races. Um, CNN polling showed that over 50 percent of white women voted for Ted Cruz, other Republicans, and the Women's March helpfully tweeted, quote, there needs to be accountability and honest reckoning. There's a lot of work to do, white women, a lot of learning, a lot of growing. We want to do it with you. Stay tuned. So, Kelsey and Lauren, are you ready to grow? <laughs> I mean, full disclaimer, Kelsey and I are both white women. So, <laughs> I believe Kate is. Yeah, yeah I, also I mean, as well. I, yes, I, I do identify speak, uh, yeah. as a white woman, which is what I am. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just ridiculous. I mean, how many graphics have you seen about congratulations to all the women uh, who made first? And I haven't seen one with a conservative woman on it, so... I've heard almost nothing about Marsha Blackburn. Yeah. I think the RNC was the only one really putting information out there that was saying, hey, guys, uh, conservative women, Republican women fared pretty well, too. I mean, three governorships to take over female Republican governors. I think that's very threatening to the left because look at 
no look no further than Nikki Haley to see uh, how a female governor on the Republican side can fare. Uh, she obviously has been doing a formidable job at the United Nations. And, um, you know, I think it's quite possible that she one day makes a run for the presidency. Um, so I, I get really torn on how to comment on these types of stories, because even just you know, creating two buckets of men or women um, feels like identity politics to me. Um, that said, you know, as a women's podcast, as, you know, writers and producers that do acknowledge that there's differences between men and women, I think it is okay to talk about. But then when we start breaking it down into um, identities further than that, it just gets into this whole idea of intersectional politics, which I I fear only divides the country and when we really need to be uniting. Yeah. And I think, too, I think part of what's frustrating, and this is a topic that you guys have addressed so often on Problematic Women, is this assumption that all women who care about women's rights think the same way. And there was an article in Vogue that was published that um, really sort of struck this note Um the author, Michelle Ruse, writes, quote, in the Georgia governor's race, an estimated 75 percent of white women, more even than white men, voted for Republican Brian Kemp, who is passionately pro-life over Stacey Abrams, a staunch protector of women's reproductive rights, while 97 percent of black women supported her. In Texas, 60 percent of white women cast their ballots for Republican Senator Ted Cruz, a supporter of alleged assaulters President Trump and Brett Kavanaugh over Democrat Beto O'Rourke, who is dedicated to improving women's health care. And I think what she's missing here is there are plenty of women who didn't think Kavanaugh was guilty. There are plenty of women who are pro-life like these. Ah, it's just so frustrating that like women are not allowed to have their own views in the minds of these so-called feminists. And how many women Healthcare, reproductive health isn't their number one issue. They care about the economy. They care about border security. They care about what's going on overseas. It's just insane to me that these people literally think that life starts and ends at people's. Well, I guess it does start and end at the uterus, but their world starts and ends with a woman's uterus. Yeah, I was looking at some exit polling and it looked like among women, healthcare was a top concern, which I think is really interesting because for so long, I think, um, you know, I think groups on the right, politicians on the, on the right weren't sure how to message on this front. And they actually started to do a lot better in this past election cycle and I think are continuing to improve. I think we're in the situation where Obamacare wasn't working for so many families. And, you know, women are often the ones taking their kids to the doctor's appointments, believe it or not. I know some people would probably say that's, that's sexist to assume, but it's just the reality. There are more women who stay home and probably are the ones dealing with doctors and medical bills. And so it makes sense to me that healthcare would be a top concern for them. And um, because Obamacare isn't working, the prices continue to rise, although they they dropped 1.5% when they've been rising by hundreds of dollars uh, year after year. So I think we're at the point where, um, you know, families want different ideas. And I have to say, that's what conservatives are trying to do. They're trying to empower states to, um, to enable them to design healthcare plans that are going to work for their families. So I think this is actually not a challenge for Republicans to message on, but an opportunity to connect with voters on an issue that is a top concern for them that I think um, in a lot of ways they've been scared of talking about for a long time.
Well, for our second topic, in an essay in Marie Claire, a mom frets that she shouldn't have adopted her daughters from China, essentially arguing they might have been better off staying there. She writes, Now I worry that we made a tragic mistake. I pulled those two beautiful babies away from a rising power and into a damaged democracy. I brought two girls of color into a society where it's clear that their word and their bodies are worth less than a man's and where open, overt racism has become even more likely now than it was a decade ago. And unfortunately, my worries aren't exactly tinfoil hat-wearing paranoia. Okay. Uh, Kelsey, (laughs) you wrote about this for The Federalist. Take it away. Oh, my gosh. So this article was published on November 6th, and everybody in the media was obviously concerned um, about the elections. And I spotted it and I was like, guys, there's there's something wrong with this. I know we're all a little bit busy trying to cover the midterms, but we need to talk about this. There is a mom in the United States who just says she, quote, regrets saving her children from a communist country and giving them the opportunity to grow up in the United States because of Trump. Now, I did write about it in The Federalist. I'd encourage you all to go check that out and read the whole article on Marie Claire because it's hard to believe this was even published. Um, You know, we're comparing a state that right now is um, putting... Uh, putting political dissenters into re-education camps. Um, You know, this is a country that has um, used to have a one-child policy, now has a two-child policy. Uh, These girls, to be honest, are lucky having been conceived in China to have made it out of the womb. Um, You know, it's China and the United States on, on, you know, when you think about freedom, they're not even comparable. There are so many people in China who would give everything to come to the United States. So obviously the article was insulting in that sense. The biggest problem I had with it is that, you know, buried later in the article, this mother talks about how she's been missing her daughter's uh, soccer games to attend marches and she's been diverting their college education funds to liberal activist groups. And that's when I saw the real problem. And I think it it really exemplifies what's wrong with the country right now, that parents are skipping soccer games because of politics, because of Trump. That is the breakdown. That is the definition of the breakdown of society when you care more about, you know, politics than attending your attending your child's soccer game. Um, I would say that is that's the real tragedy of this story. That's that's kind of the angle I took in the article I wrote on the Federalist. Um, but if you ever anybody listening, if you ever hear of a parent skipping their child's sports because of politics, knock some sense into them. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> if God forbid I ever have a child someday who's interested in sports, I might try to schedule pro life rallies at the same time. <laughs> And what do you think this mom is telling her kids, you know, every day when they get home from school? It's not, honey, you guys are going to be okay. Honey, we live in the greatest country in the world. She must be telling her kids exactly this. Like, I'm afraid for your future. And she's, that has to be doing some damage to their psyche. Yeah, she's telling them that they're victims when actually they escaped a country where they really could have been victims uh, in order to, you know, 
fight back. One of the other things she's she said she's doing is thinking about stockpiling a bunch of Plan B. Oh, uh, this is the abortion-inducing drugs that you know you can take shortly after you find out you become pregnant to kill your unborn child. Um, so you know, worst grandmother ever. <laughs> It's like, is that really what we're coming to? You're, you like uh, that, like that's like borderline child abuse to scare your children to the point that you tell them they need to stockpile Plan B. I, I mean, I, I fear for any household that is um, communicating about politics in that way because it's it's fear mongering, it's unhealthy, and it's telling your children they're victims rather than empowering them, empowering them, and and telling them that they are the luckiest children in the world to have the opportunity to grow up in the United States. Well, also, I think, you know, this is a theme that I've I've brought up a lot on this podcast, but it it also to me shows two big problems with the left right now. And that's just basically the lack of historical perspective. And then it's also (laughs) sort of this willingness to cultivate an aura of fear such that I, I think this woman, you know, is probably and we're not saying her name, by the way, because Marie Claire changed the name of the author and we're not sure what happened there. But I think, um, you know, I, I think she's probably being serious. And I think that is so out of touch with reality that, I, I you know, if I was a liberal activist, I would be questioning right now, what am I? Do- I mean, you have so many people spun up into fear. You have legal immigrants you know, worrying they're going to be deported. You have Muslims who are here legally worrying they're going to be kicked out. Like there's all this stuff that is so disconnected with the realities of the, you know, Trump administration policies and stuff that it's, it's, oh, it's just really insane. But I I agree. And, you know, speaking of the bigger picture here, um, I was in LA recently, you know, talking to some friends who are very far on the other side of the political spectrum as myself. And, uh, you know, I was talking to them about this idea of fear mongering and asking them, well, what really has changed in your life since Trump took office? Like, tell me what has changed. And they couldn't point to anything except maybe their tax reforms. Uh, tax reforms. <laughs> tax More returns. money for shoes. I just called okay, it reforms sorry. again. I did that when I was doing Fox News the other day. Uh, and said name dropping though? Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah, when okay. I was on but Fox the other day. But that's the second yeah. time I've done it. Tax returns are different than tax reforms, but tax reforms can lead to tax, <laughs> tax re- low, lower Higher tax, tax returns. <laughs> like the key thing is more money to Ooh. go spend. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that really is what has changed um, for a lot of Americans. And I think that kind of brings up all the, you know, wraps up the both topics that we were just talking about um, because- uh, Americans, the economy is working and Americans are bringing home money. Women are bringing home more money. Um, and I think you saw, you know, that some some people vote because of the economy, but maybe not as many as I had expected. Right. And last, I mean, I was just I think you alluded to this briefly, Kelsey. But of course, China is literally putting away these Uyghurs, these Muslims into uh, similar to concentration camps right now. I mean, there's really stuff happening in China that is sort of the worst fever dream the left thinks that Trump would do. Do you think this lady could have written this article in China if you switched the America and China? No, she'd be imprisoned. Absolutely not. And I I tweeted out a video of a journalist who, you know, covers China and I guess the situation over there. And he was being interviewed and had a breakdown. This is a male who had a breakdown, which doesn't I guess happen as opportunity. (laughs) Uh, because all of his sources have disappeared. Uh, 
you know, and, oh, you know, as a journalist, I think you can really understand this, the, you know, why he would be so upset about that, because in many ways he probably feels responsible. That's how bad the situation has gotten in China with political dissenters. It needs to be taken seriously. The U.N. is addressing it. Um, but China's no joke. All right. Well, for our next topic, actress Alyssa Milano is no longer down with the Women's March. That's despite her avid support of the Me Too movement. Milano said she won't be speaking at the 2019 march due to concerns about the march's founders' ties to Louis Farrakhan's hate-mongering. In an interview with The Advocate, she said, I would say no at this point. Unfortunate that none of them have come forward against him at this point or even given a really good reason why to support them. Kelsey, you again have uh, written about this topic. What do you think? I'm relieved that one celebrity finally stepped up and did the right thing. Uh, As someone who regularly covers the Women's March, I felt the need to give her credit, um, give her a little pat on the back for doing the right thing. There's a lot of issues that I think anybody remotely uh, who's moderate or remotely on the right would strongly disagree with her on. Um, but you know, I, I do wonder, I think since, um, the shooting that happened in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago, I, I think maybe some people are taking the women's marches ties to an open anti-Semitic more seriously. And, you know, maybe Alyssa Milano can make a difference and more celebrities will speak up. I am curious what's going to happen with this. If any of the founders will be held accountable uh, because the women's March without them would be very strange. I mean, these there's three of the four founders of the women's March all have ties to Louis Farrakhan. And I think the organization would be very different without them. Yeah, Tamika Mallory called Louis Farrakhan the goat, which for those who don't know, means greatest of all times. <laughs> yeah, I did not yeah know that. this is. I not... actually didn't know that. Really? Yeah, but I've heard it. <laughs> yeah, the goat. Which I mean, that's not like a tie. Like they sat next to each other at an event. This is an Instagram post that's still up as of, you know, noon today. That she says this guy's the greatest of all times. He said things like Hitler was a great guy. He's called juice termites. Like he's not like oh maybe he is a. Not great dude. Um, and I think this just goes to show that the Women's March does not represent women. It represents this weird segment of like woke liberal women who need to fit in this little box. And I know Kelsey said it, but I, I want to hit it again. Good for Alyssa Milano. And po- right after that quote, it goes on that says, I'm going to go advocate for um, migrants. Uh, I think she was talking specifically about uh, going back to, you know, the quote unquote uh, family separation issue. But she's still going to remain politically active, but she's looking into organizations that she's supporting and causes and she's uh, making a decision to distance herself. And she's not somebody who spoke once. She was one of the main advocates of the Women's March. She's kind of credited for starting the Me Too movement or really uh, kind of pushing it along. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that people are starting to really see the Women's March for what it is. And I think it'll be interesting if, you know, I think there's a lot of women who have at least attended a women's march, even if they're not leadership, who are not at all anti-Semitic and would probably be horrified if they knew about this. Obviously, the media has done very little reporting on this. And, um, yeah, I think it would just be healthier for our country if, yeah, there was this disassociation, even if they kept all their other issues, but said, no, this isn't a place where we want to go. 
Yeah, a lot of the mainstream media has shied away from it. Conservative media has been covering it for a long time. Uh, the Atlantic has run a piece and maybe a couple others. And I have to say, one of the only quote unquote mainstream media journalists who does point out the hypocrisy is Jake Tapper. So credit there. Caduce to Jake. Well, for our last topic, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity. But during the tragic shooting in California, there was also some male heroism. Matt Winterstorm, who was at the Borderline Bar when the shooting occurred, spoke to ABC News. What did you guys do next? Um, at that point, basically, th- there was a, a bunch of us that were just looking for cover. And we were, st- we were standing right next to a pool table. And so we got everyone behind the pool table and down. And then there was probably six or seven of us guys just dogpiling over the girls that were beneath Protecting us. Protecting them. Yeah, because it's my family. That's what that's what you do with your family. So I grabbed a bar stool. We went through the through the window, and then we people whoever was in the front basically was pushing the glass down and jumping out and help helping the guys and girls out. Um, and we just stood there basically forcing people as many people as we could out as as fast as we could until um, we cleared everyone out, and then we jumped out ourselves. And then it was just trying to collect everyone and push them down out of sight and as far away as possible. So I was just very touched to hear this. I think as a woman, you know, anytime you're in a dangerous situation and a guy tries to protect you, you know, it is, it's very moving. Um, Lauren, what did you think? You know, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and that men are supposed to fit in this little box. And I think it starts all the way really in kindergarten. Little boys get in trouble way more than little girls, and they're supposed to sit on their hands and not do anything. And we just talk, we, we you know, make men the enemy over and over again. So, Kate, I'm really glad you found this clip, and you're, you're exposing this side of the story where men's first reaction is typically to help women. And, and this is what we should be praising men, and, and we should be developing from young boys in kindergarten that, you know, they don't always have to come save women, but— Biologically, they're they are the protectors. They are stronger, and that's mm-hmm. never going to change. So, yeah, good for you, Kate, and good for these guys. I agree. And just to build on that, I think um, you know women are often concerned with the gender pay gap, but there have been some really interesting reports by economists uh, economists <laughs> on the workplace death gap. So far more men are dying on the job and do die on the job than women. Um, they are often the ones who are stepping up and putting themselves in these riskier uh, positions with riskier careers. And sadly, we saw that happen. Uh, one of the victims of the shooting was a California sheriff. Um, this broke my heart just minutes before going in. Uh, according to reports, he called his wife And uh, he was the first one to enter the scene and got shot multiple times. Um, His his name is Sheriff Ron Ellis, and he uh, was getting close to retiring, which is, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking to me because he devoted his entire life to serving the public, died a hero trying to save others. But, you know, out of anyone who deserved his retirement, you know, it's someone like him. And, you know, sadly, he he leaves his wife, um, who he called just minutes earlier. Which, yeah, I think 
when I first heard about that, you know, knowing, you know, one of the boys I grew up with as a police officer and thinking about him and his wife and their family, you know, I can't imagine for 29 years, like she probably had so much worry over that span. And then to sort of be like, okay, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. He's going to retire. We're going to have, you know, our golden years together. And then to have this happen, it must have just been especially devastating, but yeah, I mean, we're yeah, so I do. I do think, you know, obviously our law enforcement deserves so much credit for their bravery and, you know, everyday men. I think we need to stop shaming them so much because you're exactly right from the early reports we're hearing, um, you know, about what happened inside this bar. There were a lot of bra- brave men who were doing all they could to protect women and, um, you know, we, we need to recognize that and, you know, not try to ostracize them from society, which I feel like so many of these sort of feminist activists have been doing these days. Or they've been, you know, I was really glad, Lauren, that you brought up, you know, the issue of boys are just more active in school, which is a problem and yet not one that many educators take seriously, that our modern school system is really geared toward um, what works for girls, not so much what works for boys. And, you know, perhaps we even see that in the fact that more women go to college now than men. Um, But I I think, you know, overall, there seems to be a strain in feminism, which strikes me as like they really want to eradicate masculinity to a certain extent. They want men to be much more like women. And I think just as women, we want to stand up and be like, we don't want to be exactly like men in the workplace. We want to be equal, but we have our own approaches. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of good uh, side effects, shall we say, of being a guy that includes stuff like being (laughs) protective. And that's, you know, if you eradicate some of the rougher stuff, like, you know, maybe being a little more aggressive, obviously not beyond appropriate boundaries, you also risk the chance of eradicating the great stuff, like being protective. And I don't think that's something that we take seriously enough. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing I'll say on this tragedy, I mean, it's, it's like, it's scary how normal it's starting to feel waking up and hearing about one, one of these. And, you know, what we're hearing now is, um, the alleged shooter supposedly had um, PTSD. He was a, a veteran. And I just think one of the things we can all do to be a part of the solution is to reach out to anybody we know in our lives who is struggling, um, who is not fitting into society and and be there for them, work with them, be a part of the solution. Don't just leave that person alone because they're having issues and that's not their problem. You know, if you don't make it your problem, it's going to become all of our problems. And I think so many of these tragedies, the solution lies in local communities, in families and in friends. And uh, my last thought in that video that we you just heard, at some point, the man was very specific. They broke down the windows and they were helping men and women out. So at some point, they stopped protecting the females and they took action to act, actively save everybody. So I think, too, in tragedies like this, focusing on the good, that so many people were ready in a moment's notice to put their lives on the line, that hero, heroic police officer and these young men, um, that humanity is good. And it is really sad that this does feel normal, but it all, should also feel normal that people were stepping up and helping one another. Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. 
Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. Daniel and I will see you Monday. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.